challenging times. This means we are not the first to pray during challenging times. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, as the book of Hebrews says. A great cloud of witnesses who have been praying to God in the midst of challenging times. Today we join their prayers as we return to the Psalms. The Psalms are a book in the Bible that give us words to pray when our words fail us. Psalms, they save us from the illusion that it's always up to us to find something to say to God. God is so gracious to us that God not only responds to our prayers, but God initiates our prayers. That's why the Psalms are in the Bible. So let us join together and worship God with Psalm 46. It's up on the screens or participants guide as well. God is our refuge and strength, ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Lord God, our refuge and strength. When raging waters rise up to our necks, watch over us and keep us safe. Make us still in your presence and bring, and bring an end to war and violence, even to the culture wars and the violence of our tongues. Do this, Prince of Peace, so that all people may dwell safely along the river that flows in the city of God, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. My friends, may the peace, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let us wave a sign of our peace to our neighbor. <laughs> Now let's prepare our hearts to worship with this song.
We behave differently when we're anxious. At least I do. Perhaps you do too. When anxiety enters a room, when worry becomes a part of the atmosphere, we behave differently. How? Well, we become narrow-minded and close-hearted. We surround ourselves with people who think the way we think and feel the way we feel. And we distance ourselves from those who don't. That's what anxiety does to us. It constricts our mind's ability to be open to others. It limits our heart's ability to show compassion. It destroys creative possibilities and shuts the window on the fresh wind of the Spirit. That's what anxiety does. It's hard to be creative when you're worried, isn't it? And when the anxiety thermometer rises high enough in an entire culture, we begin to demonize those who are different. Hatred takes root. We behave differently, my friends, when we're anxious. But why? Like many kids, my mom tells me that that was one of my favorite questions as a little boy. But why? I'd ask it at an annoying rate, I'm told. Now, with a four-year-old, I I get it. (laughs) But why? Why do our behaviors and attitudes change when we're anxious? It has to do with control. Control. We have this human need to feel like things are under control. It's not a bad thing. It's just just the way it is. We have this deep need to feel like life is manageable. Again, it's a part of human nature. The challenge comes to each of us when life seems out of control, when life seems unmanageable, when it feels like we have little to no control over the outcome of life's events. When this happens, anxiety enters the picture and we start behaving differently. We start living out of what Thomas Merton calls the false self, the false self. So when we're anxious, we want control. That desire for control changes the way we relate to others. It changes even the way we relate to God. If we're not careful, that desire for control will end up controlling us. That's what happens for King Saul in our scripture for today, and it ruins everything. Before we get into it, let us pray. Lord, may your word be our rule your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Jesus, our single concern. Amen. So this week we return to our series on 1 Samuel. We're five weeks in out of six. Thus far we've traced the life of Samuel from the time he was in his mother's, not before he was in his mother's womb. Now he's a full-fledged prophet of God. This is about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Now he's serving as God's mouthpiece. God calls Samuel a trustworthy priest, one who acts in accordance with God's thoughts and God's desires. And on account of God's will, Samuel becomes God's kingmaker and his king breaker. He essentially hires and fires the kings of Israel, Samuel does. No electoral college back then, just Samuel tuning in to the word of the Lord, delivering to the people God's ruling. A couple weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Stephanie about God's original ruling regarding kings. If you don't remember, God's original ruling was to have no human king in leadership over the nation of Israel. 
No king but God. That was the original ruling. Say that after me. No king but God. What's wrong with having a king? All the other nations have kings. The Philistines have a king. The Ammonites have a king. The Canaanites have a king. All these other Old Testament nations that you don't know what they mean have a king. I don't either. But that's the point. All the other nations had a king. But Israel was not just another nation. They were God's people. God's elect. And so are we. God elected this people. God blessed this people so that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And they could not offer their unique blessing to the world if they were like the world. Remember Genesis 12, you are blessed to be a blessing, God said to Abraham. So no king but God, that's the original ruling regarding kings. Now to quickly make this point relevant to us, you need to know that the church has now been elected by God to do the same. We are blessed to be a blessing. You see, in the story of 1 Samuel that we'll soon get back into, we'll read that, we learn that Israel was not to be like the other nations. In the New Testament, we learn that the church is not to simply mirror our divisive and anxious culture. The church is called to be different. We are called to offer a unique blessing to the world. We are called to be people of peace. We are able to do this, to act differently, to not simply mirror the worst of our culture, because by God's grace, we have a shared salvation history. Israel had a shared salvation history too, and that's what united them. That's what allowed them to offer a unique blessing to the world. As you recall, the God of all creation snatched Israel out of slavery in Egypt. God gave Israel God's law, God's instructions for right living. God fed Israel in the wilderness, led them to the promised land, and appointed regional judges and leaders to oversee the affairs of society. Because of their unique relationship to God, because of their shared salvation history with one another, God enabled them to be different. Therefore, there was to be no king but God. They were to live under God's kingdom, under God's rule. They were to trust, and so are we, they were to trust in God's continual care of their lives and their futures. They were to take their cues from the one who made it all, from the creator who set the stars in place. No king but God. That was the original ruling. However, it gets interesting, doesn't it, if you read the story. If you were paying attention two weeks ago, you you already know that that plan didn't last forever. See, the people people of Israel, they got anxious without a a, a king, without a human king. And their anxiety, they started to behave differently toward God. A little less trust, a little more suspicion in God's control over things. They sought control. They thought a human king could give them what they were looking for. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Stephanie's passage that she preached on, we read about this appeal to the original ruling. The Israelite leaders got together, the text says, says, and they put together an appeal for reversing God's ruling. They wanted a king. But you already have a king. 
the prophet Samuel reminded them, God is your king. Well, sure, fine, but we, we, just, we don't want just an invisible king, a divine king. We want one we can see and touch. We want a king who can help us feel a little more secure, a little more in control. And that was their sin. You see, their anxieties were off the charts. Do you know why? <laughs> because the military threat of the Philistines, we talked about them a few weeks back, a group of people called the Philistines, powerful people, superior technology, advanced military, they were constantly threatening the people of Israel. And what kings did back then, the main thing kings did, they didn't, they didn't work for the economy all that much. What they mainly did was they fought. <laughs> they protected the nation from threats. And the people <laughs> felt threatened. They felt less and less like God could protect them, and so they asked for a king, just like all the other nations had. The prophet Samuel makes clear that this is an act of divine disobedience. So he says in his farewell address, he says, You Israel, chapter 12, verse 17, You Israel shall know and see that the wickedness that you have done in the sight of the Lord is great in demanding a king for yourselves. No king but God. But after they ask for a king, the narrative takes a surprising twist. What's shocking and a bit puzzling is that God actually gives them what they ask for. God complies with their request for a king. God eventually, after much demanding and lobbying and protesting on the part of the Israelites, God eventually gives them their king. That's where we left off in the story of 1 Samuel a couple weeks ago. And today we pick up with chapter 13. The king at this point in the story has been named and appointed. This first king of Israel, he was young, tall, and handsome. His name was, shout it out if you know it, Saul. Yes. God had told the prophet Samuel to select Saul as king. And what's interesting is that God is actually working for Saul, trying to enable Saul to be a good king. The scriptures tell us that uh, God taught Saul all of God's word through the prophet Samuel. Tells us that after teaching Saul God's word, God surrounded Saul with competent and courageous leaders, people whose scripture says, whose hearts God had touched. What I find fascinating about all of this is just how much God was willing to accommodate to the people's requests. God didn't just say, okay, fine, here's your king, let's see how it goes. Okay, fine, eat all your Halloween candy and let's see how it goes. <laughs> he didn't just teach them a lesson by giving them the king they asked for, although there is a little bit of that. God also becomes willing to help the cause of King Saul. God becomes willing to accommodate his strategy for accomplishing his purposes in the world. What divine grace. We could even call it divine humility. The God who knows everything works in the world even through our ill-informed choices. The God who is all-powerful adapts to the circumstances that arrive out of human free will. God adapts to those circumstances and finds a way to work good, even out of bad. This teaches us an important lesson today. We need to hear it loud and clear. It turns out that nothing, 
can get in the way of God's ultimate purposes for us, for our future, and for our world. God will find a way to bring about his purposes for the world. This truth ought to have more than a moderate impact on our relationship with anxiety. So we pick up today in chapter 13. God has been working through King Saul. Sometimes it was more like working in spite of Saul to protect, to protect Israel. But then something happens in today's passage. Saul's pride leads to his downfall. Pride comes before the fall, famous proverb says. That's what happens for Saul. To frame it differently, Saul's, it's Saul's anxiety that tempts him to take control. It's his anxiety that tempts him to take control. His desire for control ends up controlling him, and it ruins everything. So listen for yourself. Chapter 13, verse 1, 1 Samuel. Hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. I'm going to um, interject a little bit in the scripture reading just to help us comprehend a little better. The text says, Saul was 30 years old, 30 years old when he became king, and he ruled over Israel 42 years till he was 72. Saul selected 3,000 men from Israel. So 2,000 of those were with Saul at a place called Michmash in the hills near Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. And he sent the remaining home, the remaining soldiers. So real quick, do the math. 2,000 soldiers with Saul, 1,000 soldiers with Jonathan. That's how many soldiers? <laughs> 3,000 soldiers. I do the, we do this with Lily a lot. <laughs> there are 3,000 soldiers, okay? The rest were sent home. So keep listening. Verse 3. Jonathan... This is uh, Saul's son. Jonathan attacked the Philistine fort at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul sounded the alarm throughout the land and said, Hebrews, listen up. When all Israel heard that Saul had attacked the Philistine fort and that Israel was hated by the Philistines, the troops were called to Saul's side at Gilgal. The Philistines also were gathered to fight against Israel. Now listen to the numbers here. They, the Philistines, brought 30,000 chariots with them, 6,000 cal- cavalry, I can never say that word, <laughs> and as many soldiers as there is sand on the seashore to fight Israel. So you got 3,000 against all those <laughs> numbers. More soldiers than the sand on the seashore. It's not good, right? So the Philistines, they marched up and they camped at Michmash, east of beth when the Israelites saw that they were in trouble and that their troops were threatened, they, what do you think they did? Remember three weeks ago, early on in the life of Samuel, remember when they heard, they were in the worship center, this nationwide prayer meeting, they heard the thundering boots of the Philistines as they worshiped God. How did they respond? Did they, did they fight? Did they flee? No, they begged Saul to pray to God for them, to pray to God for de- to deliver them. They didn't run. They didn't take arms. They prayed when they heard the Philistines coming. Same situation here. But here, under King Saul's leadership, here's what happened. When the Israelites saw that they were in trouble and that their troops were threatened, they hid. 
They hid in caves and thickets among rocks and tunnels and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan River, going into the land of Gad and Gilead. They hid. Saul stayed at Gilgal, and the troops followed him anxiously. There's that word. They followed him anxiously. Anxiety was in the atmosphere because of the opposition of the Philistines. Verse 8. Saul waited seven days. He's in the city. He's waiting seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and his, his troops began to desert. So Saul ordered, Saul ordered, bring me the entirely burned offering and the well-being sacrifices. Then he offered the entirely burned offering. Let me just add, he's not authorized to offer this sort of offering because he's a king. He's not a priest. But out of his anxiety, he tries to take control of the situation. Samuel is not there. His troops are leaving. Morale is low. He takes control of the situation out of his anxiety, and he offers the sacrifice he's not authorized to do. That very moment, Saul finished offering up the entirely burned offering. Samuel arrived. Saul... (laughs) Saul didn't think he did anything wrong. Saul went out to meet him and welcome him. But Samuel said, what have you done? I saw that my troops were deserting, Saul replied. You hadn't arrived by the appointed time, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash. I thought, the Philistines are about to march against me, and I haven't yet sought the Lord's favor. So I took control of myself. Or one translation says, so I took things into my own hands and offered the entirely burned offering. Verse 13, How stupid of you to have broken the commands the Lord your God gave you, Samuel told Saul. The Lord would have established your rule over Israel forever, but now your rule won't last. The Lord will search for a man following the Lord's own heart because you didn't keep the Lord's command. This is the word of the Lord. When we're anxious, we can do stupid things. <laughs> we can say stupid things. We can post stupid things when we're anxious. King Saul does a stupid thing. The word stupid might sound offensive to you in church, but that's an accurate translation the common English Bible uses on Samuel's judgment about Saul's behavior. How stupid of you to have broken the commands the Lord your God gave you. His stupidity arises out of anxiety. Let me just explain a few more things about this passage before we apply this to our own contemporary age of anxiety. King Saul is anxious. I, I hope you got this from the reading. King Saul is anxious because he's outmatched from a numbers standpoint. He has 3,000 soldiers ready to deploy. The Philistines have as many soldiers as the sand of the seashore. I've never actually got down on my knees and counted all the sand, but I'm sure that's a lot. And it's worse than the numbers suggest. <laughs> how could it get any worse, you might be wondering. Well, this is how. The Philistines were the only ones with guns. Actually, guns were a long way off from being invented. But the Philistines were the only ones with iron weapons, right? They were the only ones with swords and spears. 
It was a new technology back then in 1000 BC, back in this era that's called the Iron Age. The ability to create stronger, more superior weapons out of iron. The Philistines knew how to do it. They had a monopoly on the iron industry. And if we read along in chapter 13, we get to verse 19, which says, No metal worker, no, no one making these iron weapons, was to be found anywhere in the Israelite territory, because the Philistines had said the Hebrews must not make swords and spears. So the Philistines had a monopoly on the iron industry. It gave them a massive advantage when it came to war from a historical standpoint. If Israel wanted weapons, swords and spears to fight with, they had to buy them from the Philistines, their enemies. Verse 22 tells us that on the day of this battle, the one that we're describing, only Saul and Jonathan had swords, no one else. So, King Saul is understandably anxious. But here's the thing. Here's the, here's the point that the scripture is trying to tell us. What King Saul lacked in weapons, he gained by having God on his side. What Israel lacked in firepower, they made up for in God's power. That's the point the scripture is trying to make. It was a remarkable thing back then. Despite being so under-resourced from a military standpoint, God had already given victory over and over again to God's people Israel. God had taught God's people through experience, not just by saying words, but through their lived experience, God had taught them that they could rely on God for everything, even when they were outmanned and outmatched. You know the, the story of, of Joshua, right? When they make their way from Egypt to the promised land, there's, there's people there already, people with weapons, and there they are, just a bunch of um, former slaves. We tend to forget that this story, um, in this story, God's people are the underdogs. There is no human historical way they should have won. The only reason Israel even makes it to the promised land it's not because of their military prowess. It's because of the power and favor of God. So back to our story. Israel lacked weapons, but the Philistines lacked God. Now you tell me, who's the favorite to win in a matchup like that? But King Saul, <laughs> the problem is he, he's having a hard time getting that. He's just like the elders who wanted a king in the first place. They wanted a king out of their anxiety to control. They, they, they didn't trust God, this invisible being, to, to be in control, to be their king. King Saul's just like these elders who are just like us. We, too often, are not satisfied with the unseen, the invisible. We want proof. <laughs> we want proof that God will give us the victory. We want proof that things will end up favorably for us. What proof is there that God will protect us? What proof is there that God will raise the dead and allow us to reunite with our loved ones? The proof is in the pudding, as the saying goes. The proof is in the pudding. God has proved himself faithful in the past. God has given us <laughs> Has he not? God has given us victory over all sorts of 
of sin patterns and fears and circumstances and situations of despair. God has provided for us in ways we never dreamed possible. God has come among us in the person of Jesus Christ, died for us, and was raised from the dead on the third day. Amen? This is not a blind faith that we have. God's signposts are everywhere scattered in God's creation. But that's still not enough for many of us some of the time. We, like Saul, find it hard to trust an invisible God. We, like Saul, get anxious about our circumstances and about our future because there's nothing we can see that assures us of the final outcome. We, like Saul, take things into our own hands. We take control. Ironically, our efforts to gain some sense of control leaves us spiraling out of control. What's necessary, my friends, is not to take control. What's necessary is to trust God's control. It is not a blind trust, for we have plenty of evidence from past generations, even from our own lived experience, that God is faithful and God can be trusted. We have to remind ourselves of those things, too easy to forget in times of anxiety. Nevertheless, it'll always, it'll always feel like a leap of faith every time to trust God, even when life seems out of control. Even if we gave our life to Jesus a long time ago, we've confessed faith in Christ for many, many years, it will still feel like a leap of faith to trust God every time when life seems out of control. To trust God even when the cancer remains. To trust God even when the circumstances don't turn out all right. To trust God even for life after death. King Saul does not trust God. King Saul let power get to his head. The story of Saul in 1 Samuel, if you trace the whole thing, it's the story of a young promising leader who becomes an anxious madman. At the root of it all is his pride. Pride grows best where there is no dependence, no trust on God. Pride, you see, is like mold. God is like the sun. Seth and I learned the hard way about how mold grows. <laughs> Do you know how mold works? It, grows, it likes to grow in the dark and in the damp. But you dry it out, you expose it to the sunlight, cannot grow. Pride's like that. It grows best where the light of God is not given permission to shine. Let the light of Christ shine in every corner of our hearts let the light of Christ shine along every neural pathway of our brain, the pride will vanish. Trust will grow. Anxiety, it may still be there, but we will experience it very differently when we trust, when we truly trust in God's care. King Saul can't do that. And that's why he offers the ill-advised sacrifice. The text says the, the troops followed him anxiously. Of course, he was anxious as well. Samuel hadn't shown up yet to offer the sacrifice. You know how you get when people are late and you get a little anxious, right? The sacrifice before war, it was a common ancient, ancient practice. 
For the Israelites, this sacrifice before war, it, it served as a sort of plea to God. It was actually supposed to be an act of dependence on God. It was a plea to both forgive them of any wrongs and to grant them victory on account of God's mercy. Samuel was supposed to be there to offer that sacrifice. Samuel was running behind schedule, so Saul takes matters into his own hands and offers the sacrifice himself. We do dumb things when we're anxious, don't we? (laughs) I know I do. Saul is anxious. He does not have this situation under control. He wants so desperately to have it under control. He has two options, and they're the same options we have. What situations do you not have under control? He has two options, and so do we. Option number one, surrender the situation to God's control in faith and trust, and let whatever comes come. Option number two, try anything and everything to gain control on your own. Maybe it's just in your mind and doing mental gymnastics to make yourself feel like you're in control. Maybe it's through prayer. Yes, we can even try to control God, manipulate God into doing what we want through our prayers. That's option number two. Try anything and everything to control the situation on your own. King Saul, he picks option number two. And it ruins him. Even still, in God's grace, God paves the way for another king, a better king, a man after God's own heart, the scriptures tell us. That's the story of King David, where we pick up next week. But for now, we're left with the two options. Let me just be honest. Can we all be honest? Life seems out of control for many of us, right? Our nation seems out of control. Our world seems out of control. There is little certainty about much of anything today. There's enough out there today to keep us anxious for a lifetime. What will we do with it all? Will we let it get the best of us and try to take control? Will we act out of our anxiety, picking sides, demonizing, allowing the root of hatred to come in? Will we try to control others? Will we try to control God? Or will we surrender to the control of God, trusting that God, who raised Jesus from the dead, has the power to raise us to, even now, to newness of life, trusting that God will do this because God cares, God loves, God is for us, not against us. The choice is left up to you and to me. Let us choose wisely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us now uh, reflect on God's word with this, um, this musical transition followed by the doxology and the deacon prayer.
Good morning. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just bring before you our anxieties and our own will and just place them before you and ask that you quiet them and help us to accept yours and know that you have a plan for us moving forward. In that vein, Lord, please accept our tithes and our offerings this morning to do your will, to do your plan, to do your work for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I haven't seen you for a couple weeks, some of you, so I'd like to... Uh, Take some prayer requests from the floor this morning for our prayers of the people. Um, obviously, we'll um, keep in mind Hugh Gallima. And also, um, it'll come through the prayer chain soon if it hasn't already. Um, prayers for Jem Sitsima, brother of Karen Lazatter and Kathy Summers, who is, uh, was admitted to the hospital on Wednesday due to COVID. Um, what I understand, he's still in the hospital, correct? He's still in the hospital, yeah. So we'll keep, uh, keep the family of the Galamas in our prayer and, and Jim in our prayers. What else, my friends, should we give thanks for? Should we pray for? Sorry to hear that. Henry, if you didn't hear, diagnosed with, with cancer, and so he'll have um, several treatments over the coming weeks. So we do pray for, for God's mercy and God's healing on Henry's body. Other prayers? What's his name? Blake. Blake. So if you didn't hear, Blake Hall, um, related to, to Karen, fell, f um, fell from a tree during a hunting, hunting accident. So broken body, broken feet, um, broken vertebrae, two, kid, two, two little boys. So pray for Blake and for his, his family and pray for uh, strength to, to recover. Pray for the grace to, to fully recover and pray certainly for the family as they um, endure the coming months. Other petitions, other praises? Yeah, Wendy? Yeah. 
So prayers for family members as they travel, um, all who are traveling during Thanksgiving, whether by car or plane, prayers for safe travels, prayers for health. What else? Joyce? Bob and Joyce, praise God for um, milder cases of, of COVID, and now they've been over that for a little bit, and grateful to God for, for the healing there. Glad you're well. Any other praises, petitions? All right, friends, let's go to our God who cares for us, Scriptures say, when, when our anxieties multiply, God's comforting calms us down. That's one of my favorites. With that in mind, let us pray to the God who hears us. God, when our anxieties multiply, your comforting calms us down. We pray, Lord, for your comfort today, for your comfort for the family and friends, and there were many of our beloved Hugh who has passed away. We are grateful for a life well lived. We are grateful for the promises of life after life. We are grateful that he is with you now, singing glory to you. But we pray for those who are left behind. It's hard. Pray for your grace, your mercy, your comfort. We pray too for, for Henry, diagnosed with cancer recently all the health problems he's had recently. We pray, Lord, for the treatments that they would bring health to his body. We pray for his mind and his spirit to be fully surrendered to you, God. We thank you for the ways you've proved faithful to Henry in the past. And we pray, Lord, for your faithfulness once more. We pray for Blake Hall, the young man who fell um, during a hunting accident, has broken body. Lord, bind up his wounds, bring healing to his body, work through the doctors and physical therapy, the procedures, give him strength, give him trust in you, help his family to, to rally around him, give them an extra dose of, of, of your compassion and your strength. Pray too, Lord, for protection for family members traveling during Thanksgiving. We ask that you keep them safe, keep our roads safe, keep our um, airways safe, our flights safe. Pray, Lord, for protection from, from COVID as well. Thank you for the, um, the hope of a, of a vaccine coming up soon. Hopefully, we pray, Lord, that this would um, be safe and effective and that you, Lord, through this would put an end to the pandemic. We offer you our praises too, our praises for Bob and Joyce, for their recovery from COVID. Thank you, Lord, that you have restored them to full health. Continue to watch over them and, and all of us, protecting us, having mercy on us. We have much more to praise you for, God. We are grateful for this church community. We're grateful for your scriptures, the 
the sure um, truth that they give us. We're grateful for, most of all, for Jesus, God in the flesh, who is sure proof that you are with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you care for us so much, you're willing to die for us, help us live. So we give you thanks. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends, now as we go from here, I invite you back here (laughs) for the congregational meeting. Um, Feel free to take a little break, restroom break, or whatever you need to do. But we'll we'll come back here in just a few minutes for the, the meeting. Again, if you're on YouTube,